function and which uh, my waders were a little loose so when Thomas went down the water came up and went right over my waders and I'm soaked from here all the way to my socks so this is gonna be fun I got to get new waders because they uh, I think Pastor Jordan used them and stretched them out That's, I'm gonna go with it uh, <laughs> do want to say this before we open um, the word. We are starting a brand new Bible reading plan in 2020. It is out on the middle table. You can grab it. We're going to be reading through the Old Testament in two years, reading through the New Testament twice over two years. So it's a two-year Bible reading plan, and we have the first year already out. You can grab that and read along with us. It's basically one um, chapter from the Old Testament, one chapter from the New Testament every day. Um, and it's just a, a great way to, to read the word, kind of slow down a little bit, to dive in. So I want to encourage you to take this journey with us. If you um, took the journey with us in, in 2019, um, we finished that up on um, Christmas Eve, reading through the whole Bible in, in one year. And uh, pretty much the Psalms uh, through and a half through. And just a, another great time together in the word. So just want to encourage you to join with us and just get in the word and if you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to Luke chapter 2. So the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, and welcome to our sixth and final message in our messenger series where we have been dissecting the message that the angel gave to the shepherds on that first Christmas night. We broke it up into six messages, basically fear not, um, good news, great joy for all people, a Savior, and then Christ the Lord. So for the next 30 to 35 minutes, we're going to talk about Jesus, and uh, we'll see what God does from there. And that might sound like extremely simplistic to you. We're going to talk about Jesus, but I can assure you in the world that we live in, it actually is more complex than you might think. I say that we're going to talk about Jesus, and when I say that, the question that probably should come to your mind is, well, what Jesus are we going to talk about? Because we live in a world where that takes on many different ideas and many different variations. Did you know that Muslims believe in Jesus? In fact, he is written about in their Quran. He's called um, Isa. And Muslims consider him to be a great prophet. Very great prophet that God sent to mankind. Um, the, the Jew, not talking about the ethnic, but the religious um, person who has given themselves to the religion of Judaism. They believe in historical Jesus. Although um, their view of him is not very good, they believe that he is the greatest of all false messiahs and that he had the greatest impact on turning people away from Judaism. Um, Hindus believe in Jesus. Some regard him as the incarnation of the god Vishnu. So according to Hindu belief, Vishnu is periodically incarnated into the world in different forms, such as um, fish, dwarfs, or human beings. So that is kind of um, where Hindus are. Atheists and agnostics believe in the historical Jesus, who is either a very good teacher or at least a life to be emulated by us. Unbelievers, of course, who don't believe in Jesus in any real religious way still see him as a historical person, kind of like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. And they would say this, sure, he did some good things, but in my life personally, he is irrelevant. So that is kind of the picture there. Then we have what is called nominal um, Christians or cultural Christians, those who would call themselves Christians because they live in America. They live in the South um, because they think they vote a certain way. So therefore, they say they're, they're Christians. But these nominal Christians... 
they consider Jesus to be an add-on figure um, in their life, not necessarily Lord of their lives. He's kind of a genie in a bottle who demands nothing from his followers. You know, if we're, if we're really honest, the, the Jesus to the nominal Christian kind of exists like an errand boy. We ring our bell, he comes running to us with whatever brings us comfort, whether it be frappuccinos and donuts or anything else that we might need, and he comes running and brings it to us, and um, we are happy with him, he's happy with us. So the question becomes, which Jesus are we going to talk about this morning? And the plan, as I pray, is always the plan for us, is we're going to focus on the Jesus that's presented in the Word of God. Um, not a comprehensive Jesus, because we'd be here all day, so we're not going to look at every aspect of him, but a certain view, specific view, given to us by the angel that first Christmas night, that Jesus is Christ the Lord. He is Christ the Lord. He is Lord and Messiah. And as we saw on Tuesday night, Jesus is Savior. And what a Savior He is. But let me say this very clearly this morning. He is more than that. He is more than just a Savior. Many people want Jesus the Savior, but they do not want Jesus the Lord. You know, many want the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but they don't want um, the lion who rules the world. You know, do you see Jesus as both? Do you want him for who he is? Do you want him as lamb and as lion? The Bible presents Jesus as both lion and lamb, sometimes even in the same chapter. Think about John 2. We see Jesus as the lamb making water into wine to help a young couple at their wedding. And then in the same chapter, we see Jesus, the lamb, making a whip and driving out people from the temple at Passover. In Revelation 5, Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah, while in the same chapter, he's referred to as a lamb who had been slain. So a lion is the king of the jungle. A lion eats whatever it wants. A male lion lives in a pride or a pack um, with mainly females and children. And if another male comes around and um, threatens, um, the male of the pride will go to war and slaughter anything that threatens his pack. Sometimes in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as lion. Other times, he is a lamb. And what we know about lambs is lambs are meek. Um, They are uh, creatures who run from danger. They stick together with their flock. They are very social animals. They are also very vulnerable, and so um, they're so comforting to us and so safe to us that we actually teach our children to count them um, when they're trying to get to sleep. That's how safe sheep are um, to us or lambs are to us. Lambs are no threat whatsoever to any other animal ever. And so here's the picture. We like Jesus as a lamb. We like him if he's no threat to our lives. We like him if he's no threat to what we want to do. What we don't always like is Jesus the lion. Yet, here's the reality. We must not and we cannot separate him for our own liking. We must receive him for who he is. And he is is Savior and he is Lord. So we're going to come for the last time to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 today. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. And then we're going to dive into this text and see where the Lord takes us. So Luke 2, 8 through 11, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. 
And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. Jesus, we come before you as our Lord. Today, show us what that means in every single one of our lives. What it means, Jesus, for you to be Lord at the moment of our salvation. What it means for you to be Lord as we walk and grow in the grace and knowledge of you. What it means for us now, what it means for us forever. What it means that you are Christ, the anointed one. Just speak to us, we pray, by your word, through your spirit, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, and you may be seated. So I'm going to tease this out just a little more. How many times do you think the, the title Savior is used in the New Testament? So just think about a number in your mind. How many times the word Savior is used in the New Testament? And the number is this, 24. Yet the reality is only 15 times it speak of Jesus as Savior, and nine times it's, it calls God the Father Savior. In comparison, how many times is Jesus referred to as Lord in the New Testament? I'm glad you asked, because the answer is 618 times. Perhaps even more surprising, two-thirds of the books in the New Testament do not refer to Jesus as Savior. Even the theological heavyweight books of Romans and Colossians do not refer to Jesus as Savior, but they do refer to Jesus as Lord. Also, Jesus is referenced as Christ. 543 times in the New Testament. So what do you think Jesus is trying to emphasize? What's he trying to get us to understand? Yes, Jesus is Savior. And what a Savior he is. He is the only Savior of sinners in the world. But he is more than a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. The title Christ, anointed one, refers to the Messiah. The one that the Old Testament pointed to um, who would come for us. Jesus is Lord, when it's said in Scripture, doesn't only refer to Christ as our personal Savior, but as the Lord of the universe. He's Lord over everything. Paul connected these two dots in Romans 1-4 when he says, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And he says this, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is who he is. The fundamental premise of our Christian faith is the Lordship of Jesus. Now, I, I get it. We don't like talking about it. We don't like to hear that. But it makes a difference when you think about who it is that is the Lord over our lives and what he has done for us. But the Lordship of Christ stands at the core of our Christian faith. Everything in our Christian faith, from becoming a Christian to living the Christian life, ultimately the outcome of being a Christian, stands or falls with Jesus being Lord. And I know, I know Jesus is Lord sounds so impersonal, especially in a world where we love our own personal Jesus. We love to have our own personal Jesus, our Jesus that makes us feel good, that believes everything that we believe. Um, he does everything that we would do. He never stands against us. So in that stand, standpoint, to say Jesus is Lord seems impersonal. We would rather say Jesus is mine. That sounds so much more personal, doesn't it? Jesus is mine. It's is comforting, sweet, and it's non-threatening. Yet the New Testament paints a very different picture. Jesus 
Think about this. Jesus Christ the Lord, just as he did in the temple, he also comes into our lives, and guess what he does? He overturns the tables of our lives. He, he walks into our lives, and he doesn't just go, you're doing good, keep up the good work. No, he walks in, and all the things that are sinful in our lives, he overturns. And he makes a mess of them. And we have a choice. We can either let him clean it up, or we can go back and try to start setting those things right back up. And that is the choice that we have. My prayer this morning is that Christ would overturn some tables and some lives in this room um, during our time together. So we're going to unpack two truths today related to Jesus Christ, the Lord. And I'm going to say, if this gets a little uncomfortable today, praise God. Praise God. If the Holy Spirit steps on our toes today, praise God. If we find ourselves going, mate, have I, have I ever made or submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Praise God. If we find ourselves as believers going, I need to submit again to this area of his Lordship in my life. Praise God. So let's unpack two truths related to Christ the Lord. The first is this. Jesus is the anointed Christ. Which is kind of redundant because the name Christ literally means anointed. But he is the anointed Christ. Christ. The angel said he would be Christ the Lord. And let me just go ahead and clear up a misconception. Christ is not Jesus' last name. I know some of you were kind of confused by that. His name is Jesus of the Christ family. But um, Christ is not his last name. It is his title. He is the anointed one. In Matthew 16, Peter um, gets this revelation from God. And Jesus said, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, you're awesome, but that didn't come from you. You're not smart enough. That came from God the Father. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. Why does the Bible refer to Jesus as the Messiah? And let me just say this. If you didn't grow up in church like many of us did, this probably requires a little explanation. So why is Jesus the Messiah? When God created the world, he placed Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden. He gave them authority over Everything he made, he commanded them, be fruitful, be, uh, multiply, fill the earth, be faithful stewards over everything that I have given to you. He also commanded them not to do something. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you will surely die. As we know, the serpent persuaded Eve to try the fruit. She gave it to Adam together. They disobeyed God's command and death and brokenness entered into not just their world, but our world. And we are born in sin and born in brokenness and born um, in spiritual death, facing physical death. Yet in the midst of God's punishment of Adam and Eve, God promised a Savior. He called him a seed that would come and would crush the head of the serpent. And that's only three chapters in the Bible. So that's just the first three chapters is what we got, the first three chapters. And then what about the rest of the Old Testament? So it turns out that God revealed the Messiah all the way through the Old Testament. When God came to Abraham and promised that Abraham, he would make Abraham a nation and make um, Abraham a blessing to all nations from his offspring. That meant Jesus. He came to Judah saying through Judah there would be a king who would bring peace on earth. While Judah's descendant, David, was a king after God's own heart, he was also a sinful king who missed the mark and proved to not be the Messiah. But the Messiah would come through David's line. So even though 
All the kings of Judah and Israel missed the mark, and there were not many godly kings. The prophets in the Old Testament kept saying, He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He is coming. Do not miss him. And then finally, Jesus came. A king not just for Israel, but for all people. He saved us not just from outside oppression, but from the oppression of sin and death that affects every single one of us, giving us real power to combat the enemies in all of our lives. And he will, according to the word of God, come again to complete um, his victory over evil and suffering and bring his kingdom to earth forever. Think about this. An examination of earthly religions or organized religions in this world is a very interesting observation because here's what it, here's what it um, shows us. In every single man-made religion, the scenario is the same. First came the man, then came the plan. So earthly religion, first came the man, then came the plan. So in other words, at the beginning of every religious movement, first a person stepped forward. That is the man. Then that person revealed um, this new revelation. That would be the plan. Yet Christianity stands in stark contrast to that. With Christianity, the order is reversed. First came the plan, then came the man. It's absolutely reversed. The plan came at the very beginning when God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit covenanted together that they would save mankind. You can read it in Ephesians chapter 1. God said, I will save them. God the Son said, I will purchase them. God the Holy Spirit said, I will seal them. This is the picture of what God has promised. This is the plan. And then according to Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, the God-man. Let me make it very clear. Jesus is not the Christ because he was the only one that met the criteria. That's not what makes him the Christ. What makes him the Christ is he set the criteria. He set the criteria of perfection. He revealed unique details about himself all through the Old Testament, even some 1,400 years before he came, and then he uniquely fulfilled it all. That's what makes him the Christ. He fulfilled it all. Just consider the plan revealed in the Old Testament, just a few of them concerning um, the Messiah. According to Isaiah 7.14, the Messiah would be conceived of a virgin. According to Micah 5.2, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. According to Isaiah 29.17-19, he would heal the blind and the deaf. According to Zechariah 9.9, he would present himself as Messiah by humbly riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. According to Zechariah 11, 12 through 13, he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. According to Isaiah 53, 8 and 9, the Messiah would be unfairly judged and condemned to die. According to Psalm 22, and again Isaiah 53, the Messiah would be crucified as an offering for sin. And according to Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, the Messiah would rise from the dead. Here's the picture. Jesus did not come as an unannounced Messiah and said, ta-da, I'm here. No, Jesus prepared the way for his coming as the anointed one, as the coming one. First, the plan was revealed. Then the eternal Messiah came down for us, to us, um, anointed by God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus is the anointed 
Christ. But secondly, don't miss this, Jesus is the exalted Lord. So secondly, Jesus is the exalted Lord. He says, the, the angel said it again, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is, say it with me, Christ the Lord. He is the Lord. Just think about Jesus as Lord. Just think about that statement, Jesus as Lord. I read something this week I thought was pretty, pretty neat. Let's assume that the distance between the earth and the sun, so 92 million miles, was reduced to the thickness of this sheet of paper. So this sheet of paper signifies 92 million miles. So think, think that with me. If that's the case, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. If you go from all the way across our galaxy, there would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our galaxy, of course, is just a speck in the dust of the universe. And here's the reality. Jesus holds it all together. So if Jesus holds it all together, is that the kind of person that you ask to come into your life to be your assistant? Just think about that. The one who holds it all together, is that the kind of person that you ask to come into your life just to help you and to be your co-pilot? That is the way we assume things, that Jesus is coming into our life. He's here to serve us. And yes, he serves us by giving to us what we can never have, which is salvation. But in salvation, we now become servants of him. We serve him. He is Lord. For too long, pastors and teachers have stood in churches and they've compelled people, begged people, saying, saying this very statement, make Jesus Christ your Lord. Make Jesus Christ your Lord. And let me say this clearly. You don't make Jesus your Lord. He is Lord. If you choose to never acknowledge him throughout your whole life, he is still Lord. Jesus ended up in heaven going, if only enough people will vote for me, I'll be Lord. That's not what he is saying. He's Lord whether we acknowledge him or not. So what's our part? We don't make him Lord. He already is Lord. We submit and surrender to his lordship. We surrender to him as Lord of our lives. Jesus is first. This means that he is not an important chapter in the story of the world. He's the book. So Jesus in a chapter, he is the book in which all the other chapters are written. This kind of all or nothing position concerning Jesus has never been popular in our world, whether it be then or now. For instance, think about it like this. Towards the beginning of the second century, the Roman emperor decided that Christians had become so numerous um, that there was no use trying to stamp them out anymore. So he said, I will make peace with them. So he even decided to put a statue of Jesus in the Pantheon among the statues of all the Greek gods. Um, a symbol at the top of the Pantheon read this, Caesar is Lord, or he is king of kings, indicating that Caesar's position would always be first. The Christians could have been honored. They could have said, you know what, guys? We started, our faith started with a bunch of uneducated fishermen who live in the backwoods of Israel, and now who we're worshiping is now in the pantheon. We have made it. But instead of being grateful, they sent a letter to the emperor telling him, get this, if you don't take that statue down, we will. And in the letter, they wrote these words, Jesus will never be among your gods because he is above them all. Amen. Jesus will never, 
ever be among the gods of this world because he is above them all. This is the declaration. When the early Christian declared Jesus is Lord as their declaration, they were literally choosing to align everything, their life, even their death, with Jesus. This wasn't just a trite statement they were declaring. It was treasonous. Jesus is Lord. It echoed rebellion against the establishment of that day. It showed they had a different allegiance than those within the world. Those three words changed everything. Jesus is Lord. Yet we have to stop and pause and think about this. What kind of Lord is he? If Jesus is Lord, what kind of Lord is he? And I'm glad you asked. Because he is the kind who not only deserves our obedience, he also wins our admiration. He is the kind of king that we don't just acknowledge with our service, but we acknowledge with our adoration and delight. He is a giving Lord, not an exacting Lord. He is not a selfish Lord. He is a self-sacrificing Lord. He is not a mean Lord. He is a kind Lord. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. Tim Keller compares the lordship of Christ to what he calls a life quake. So get this. He says, when a great big truck goes over a tiny little bridge, sometimes there is a bridge quake. When a big man goes onto thin ice, sometimes there is an ice quake. Whenever Jesus Christ comes down into a person's life, there is always a life quake. And he says this, everything is reordered. When Jesus comes into a person's life, everything is reordered. If Jesus was a guru, if Jesus was a great man, if he was only a great teacher, if he was a, a genie in a bottle, there would be some limits to his rule over us. If he is Lord, then we cannot approach him on our own terms. Anything, any view that we have, any conviction, any idea, any behavior, any relationship that we are in, he is Lord over. He is Lord over, period, period. If that's not your Jesus, brothers and sisters, you are not serving the Jesus of the Bible. You are serving a Jesus that you have created in your own mind that cannot save you. But let me say very clearly, don't think that I'm speaking today about some superior Christians and about this whole lordship thing. This is only um, superior Christians. Back in the 80s, if you lived in the 80s, there was a huge conflict that broke out. It was known as Lordship Salvation, where many stood up and said, listen, in order to be saved, you have to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Others said, that is terrible to say that because you're making it to be a work. And they entitled it Lordship Salvation, and it became like this big thing. Do I believe in Lordship Salvation? Yes. Why do I believe it? Because Jesus believed it. Because the word of God believed it. And what it means is this. You must come to Jesus on his terms. And if you don't come to him on his terms, you have nothing to do with him. That's what it means. You have to come to Jesus on his terms. It's the clear picture. Think about this. The confession of Jesus as Lord is the ground level of Christianity. Romans 10, 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what does Paul say? You have to confess Jesus as Lord. He even goes on to say, whoever calls or everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Think of it this way. According to James 2.19, the demons and the devil himself has more faith than many professing Christians. James 2.19 says this, even the demons believe and they tremble. When was the last time you trembled? When was the last time you trembled in the presence of God? The demons do. Yet the picture is, we know they won't be saved. Think of it like this. I use this often, but I'm going to use it one more time. And I'll probably use it again. If Satan were here this morning, and I'm not making any claims whatsoever, so don't, I'm not staring at anybody. I'm not making any eye contact in this moment. But if Satan were here in this moment, and we were to ask him, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? He would say, yes. If we were to ask him, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? And I know some of you are going to say, well, Jesus or devil's a liar. So how, Okay, if he were standing here before God and we were to ask him these questions where he cannot lie, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world? He would have to answer yes. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved? He would have to answer yes. And then if we were to ask him, well, would you like to join our church and use your gifts and abilities here? He would say, yes. I would love to join your church and use my gifts right here. So think about this. That's a pretty nice sheet to follow. That's a pretty good checklist. He believes it. Check. Believes it. Check. Believes it. Check. The problem is, according to the word of God, Satan cannot and will not be saved. So how can we bring separation here? What would be the question that we could ask that would bring separation between someone who believes and is not saved and someone who believes and is saved? And the question would be this. Satan Will you repent of your sin and will you turn and trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior? To which he would say, absolutely not. I will not ever do that. And I believe that there are some here this morning. You have believed one half of Romans 10. You've believed the story of the life of Christ, death, resurrection, but you have not Confess him as Lord. You've not surrendered to Jesus as Lord of your life. I want to invite you this morning, implore you, urge you right where you are sitting to believe his claims. Receive his love. Let today be the day you call Jesus who he is, Lord. That you place your life under his lordship. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. It's scripture. Romans 10, 13. We're not making this up. This is scripture. Maybe you're here today and you're a child of God. Let me ask you this. Are you in this moment surrendering your life to the Lordship of Jesus? Are you in this moment? If Jesus is your Lord, you don't tell him no. You don't tell him no. If Jesus is Lord, you don't get to be in charge. Let me say it again. If Jesus is Lord, you don't get to be Lord. You don't get to call the shots. Are you currently submitting to his lordship? Either Jesus, either he is Lord and you have surrendered to his lordship or you are in trouble. I pray today every person in this room will get to a place where we confront Jesus for who he is. He is Christ the Lord. What have we done with him? Have we truly surrendered ourselves to his lordship? Have we done that? Are we doing that? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved.
And Jesus will be forever what he is right now. He will forever be Lord. May we respond to him now as we will respond to him then. I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we ask whatever the Lord is telling you to do that you would do it. We're going to call the musicians forward as we pray. Father, we just approach you now through your Son, acknowledging once again, Jesus, you are Christ, the Anointed One, our Messiah, our Savior, the Lord. Father, the reality is the the message of your word is not a popular message in our world today. We want to believe that we can have Jesus as an add-on figure and it doesn't require anything from our lives, that we can do whatever we were doing before. We were saved, and yet your word tells us very clearly, Jesus, when you come into a life, it will never be the same. You will disrupt that life in a way where our sin is not comfortable in your presence. And we have a choice. Either we remove you or we remove the sin. Oh God, today I pray that we would remove anything in our lives that is not pleasing to you. Jesus, in this moment, may you overturn in our lives anything that is not pleasing to you. And Lord, help us as you overturn those things. Instead of grabbing them, trying to immediately set them back up, help us to ask you to remove them to take them from our lives so that you might reign over every area of our lives. Rule over us today. Reign over us. We thank you for the type of Lord that you are. You are not a mean, cruel dictator. You are a Lord who laid down your life for us and picked it up again. Oh, how we praise you. Finish this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, you may.